Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street partners with businesses, organisations, unions and social democratic parties across the globe to develop community organising strategies and train leaders to build power from within their community. And in 2021, Dunn Street will continue to work with folks that want to share their stories, inspire others, take action, give hope and organise communities for change. To find out how you can partner with Dunn Street, hit us up at dunnstreet.com.au. Socially Democratic is also presented to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Are you passionate about providing access to justice? Morris Blackburn, Australia's leading plaintiff law firm, is looking for a senior associate to join their TAC and work injuries team on a full-time permanent basis in either their Dandenong or Ringwood offices. You will use your legal, technical knowledge and expertise to drive for fair outcomes for Morris Blackburn's clients. The role is obviously based in Melbourne, Victoria. And to apply, go to morrisblackburn.com.au forward slash careers. Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left politics and organising podcast that dives into the progressive campaign issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. I'm going overseas again today. It's been a while since we've touched on US politics and November is fast approaching with a whole bunch of off-cycle elections uh, happening in particular in the Commonwealth of Virginia and Sam Schneidman, our resident Washington or US campaign and politics correspondent and a native Virginian, uh, although he's living in uh, Brooklyn these days, uh, will come on the show to give us a bit of an update about the goings-on with the upcoming elections uh, in the US um, and talk a bit more broadly about uh, US politics um, and uh, all that kind of stuff. So look out for um, Sham in a moment. Uh, And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher. And if you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. Uh, And for updates, follow Dunstreet at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. Okay, stop talking, Stephen. Let's just get into today's episode. Okay, we're taping this one on uh, a Friday morning. Mudjandahina, Skoyoga, in uh, lockdown Melbourne, but hopefully, fingers crossed, not locked down for much longer. We're getting closer and closer every day to that 70% double vaccination rate here in Victoria, which means that um, according to the Premier's roadmap, um, things will start to ease. So, and I don't think that, I think... um, that's like just under two weeks away, which is great. So looking forward to that. Light at the end of the tunnel, all that kind of stuff. Um, but we are uh, we're going stateside today. I haven't spoke to my good buddy Sam Schneidman in a while. Um, and U.S. election fever. Well, I wouldn't know if you'd call it a fever because it's kind of like an off, an off year. But anyway, there are elections happening. You <laughs> said anyway. Yeah, yeah. It's an off year, but anyway, there's some elections coming up in. Um, in early November, because and it's mid October now, and I just want to get Sam on to um, give us a bit of a, an update of what's going on over in the states. So, Sam Schneidman, welcome back to uh, Socially Democratic. It's good to be here, Stephen. Uh, nice to see you again. I'm glad to see that you don't look any crazier than when lockdown began. <laughs> no, when people are worse for wear. You just, you know, you, you're pretty consistent here. Oh, yeah, I'm like. I'm like Glenn McGrath. I'm just, I'm just, just bowling in that 
corridor of uncertainty every day, just consistent. That's all I am, Mr. Consistent. Exactly, exactly. Never want too much variation in your life. Um, well, before we get into the podcast, Mazel Tov, congratulations. Some big news at, uh, in your own world there. Made the... What happened? Huh? What happened? Well, you tell us. Well, I got engaged, Stephen. You did. Can you believe it? <laughs> no, I actually, I actually can't. I was surprised when I saw it on social media. I was like, "Oh my god, okay." It's because of all the uh, all the episodes of Socially Democratic I've been doing. That's it. That's it. Well, I'm look. Hey, I'm, I uh, I'm up for any excuse to travel uh, stateside. I'm actually up to any excuse to get out of uh, Melbourne, really. So uh, whenever you organise that wedding. Um, I'll be there. Although I did say to you I'd prefer a Cape Cod wedding uh, either side of a Red Sox homestand just to, you know, do some stuff before and some stuff afterwards. We'll see what I can do. Yeah. I'll, I'll discuss it with the powers that be. Indeed. Thank you so much. Let's turn to uh, US politics. Um, as I said just previously, there are a number of elections uh, coming up. What are the races that we should be keeping an eye on um, come uh, the first Tuesday in November this year? Well, yeah, so this is a bit of an off year. Um, As you mentioned in the US, um, our elections of note are basically every two years, um, except uh, after each presidential cycle, uh, there are a few governor's races that are really worth watching. Um, and the reason why is because it's sort of seen as the first poll test of w- how people are feeling about the current power structure and presidency in Washington. So um, the two states that have gubernatorial races open in uh, 2021 are New Jersey and Virginia. This year, only Virginia is the one that is worth paying attention to at this point. Uh, In the past, these races have um, been all-consuming media affairs. Uh, This is when Chris Christie bursted onto the um, political scene, um, if y'all remember him. And uh, we have an exciting... So New Jersey's not really um, that much of a factor this this go-around. It's really Virginia that people are are locked in on. Uh, and there's a couple of races going on in Virginia. Is it the governor's race? But it's also the, the there's the legislature is up for uh... yes, the legislature is up um, as well as uh, some statewide races. So the attorney general, um, the lieutenant governor, things like that. Uh, Terry McAuliffe, uh, former governor, former Democratic uh, governor, former, I think he was uh, the chairperson for the DNC for a period there as DNC, well, yeah, exactly. uh, is running again. He's running again because there are term limits in uh, in Virginia in terms yeah, of the governor's not, house. You cannot hold successive terms as governor of Virginia, so you're only allowed one term at a time. Um, were you surprised that McAuliffe put his hand up again to run? No, I think McAuliffe in his mind wants to run for president. And so a um, another successful tenure as governor of Virginia might help solidify that case, help him uh, overcome 
his brand as a partisan warrior. And um, I think he's just a political animal and uh, wanted to do it again. Um, what about the uh, the state race? I've been talking to some friends over in Virginia. They don't feel overly confident about the house races in VA. Um, and it, that gives me some worry given that, you know, Virginia has been slowly been turning a darker shade of blue since, I guess, 2008. Why? why I think Democrats that's a bit of a misconception to be honest. So Virginia has definitely gone uh, democratic in the last few elections, uh, especially the presidential cycles. However, uh, the top line numbers, uh, though they have been consistently Democrat, certainly don't indicate a decisive turn uh, in the state. I would think that to be honest, it's still something of a, of a toss-up. So if you think back um, a couple of cycles ago, Mark Warner, a sort of the first Democrat to really win uh, consistently in Virginia statewide, uh, came very close to losing um, his Senate seat to Ed Gillespie, the former chair of the RNC. Um, that sort of presaged the uh, Trump wave then there was um, Terry McAuliffe, who very narrowly beat um, Ken Cuccinelli, uh, who is not a great guy. Um, the former uh, corrupt governor of uh, Virginia, Bob McDonnell, won, narrow, won his race narrowly. Um, so there is, uh, there, it's a very competitive place. The reason for that being um, there's a lot of demographic shift and growth happening within the suburbs and um, the composition of the electorate in Virginia continues to change. I, think, I mean, you are a native Virginian, so you certainly know the, 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 the lie of the land a lot better than the, uh, most people do. The suburbs of the, the, where Washington, D.C., sprawls that that suburban sprawl moves into northern virginia i'm assuming that's yeah. the area where the democrats are starting to make significant inroads into into, into holding the state the, the democratic stronghold is basically in three areas uh the city of richmond the suburbs of dc and the virginia beach area Hampton uh, Roads, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Richmond is a beautiful city as well. If you ever go through there, I would always recommend going popping in in, uh, in Richmond. Actually, funny story, speaking about Richmond. When we were there in 2016, uh, we, uh, on the uh, Aussies for Hillary, um, Let's Make America Australia Again campaign, uh, we stayed in Virginia and did a bit of campaigning there. And there was one morning, we were, I think we were basically staying in kind of like the hipster part of Virginia, uh, of Richmond, no idea where we were. And we got a, very hipster breakfast, completely deconstructed the whole thing. Um, a lot of sourdough. Um, and and the coffee was decent. We went across to this sort of vintage store uh, just to have a bit of a sticky peek. And the woman that was working behind the, the, the counter there gave off all the vibes of someone who would be a Democrat, particularly given the town, the area of Richmond we're in. And we were having a bit of a chat to her. She was asking us, oh, where are you from? We're from Australia, yada, yada, yada. What are you over here doing? You know, having a bit of a, having a, bit of a laugh and knocking on some doors and stuff at the same time. And it turned out she wasn't voting for Hillary. Like 
she was, you know, she was prototypical millennial Democrat and wasn't voting for Hillary. And I just found that we walked out, we all walked out of the, the vintage store and looked at each other and went, shit, if she's not voting for Hillary, is Hillary in trouble here? No, don't be silly. And moved on and, you know, went, went about Turns our business. Out she was in deep trouble. Yeah, right? Now, yeah, I know she carried, she I know Hillary carried Virginia in the end, but it was kind of close, right? I remember kind of on election night sweating on it. And, and yeah, so... Um, I think, you know, what was, you know, interesting about the presidential race in 2020 is that it wasn't as close as, as it had been in, in the past when all things were said and done. And I think that just speaks to sort of the antipathy that um, Donald Trump has, has generated in sort of like the suburbs uh, the, of the major metro areas across the country, which ultimately help swing the election away away from him. What are the issues that are going to shape this particular campaign in 2021 in Virginia? It's really interesting. I think the economy is front and center on everybody's minds, right? You know, even though uh, life is sort of back to normal here in the U.S., COVID is definitely something that still hangs over all of us. But in America, the way that it really hangs over us is it's sort of the impact on the economy. So right now in the U.S., we're experiencing noticeable inflation, and a lot of that is attributed to supply chain disruptions um, that are caused, you know, from around the world. Co- you know, COVID's a global disease, of course, that impacts um, a global economy, and um, that's driving up prices here in the U.S. And as we know, the economy is a very big uh, driver of um, how people feel about their politicians in Washington. So if people are concerned about uh, inflation, uh, I would I think that that is something to, to pay attention to. So weakness on the economy uh, is one thing that is going to be an issue. Another is the status of the agenda for the Democrats in Congress. Right now, the Democrats are currently debating uh, how to uh, accomplish President Biden's social agenda, which is called the Build Back Better agenda, which covers all sorts of good stuff, um, climate change policy, um, child care, paid family leave, a bunch of the stuff that an advanced democracy should have and which you would commonly, which you would most Australians would be familiar with. Um, and that's being held up by two senators on the Democrat side, Joe Manchin from West Virginia, and somewhat more inexplicably, Kirsten Cinema of Arizona. At any rate, um, the status of the, uh, the uh, Democrats' agenda in, wa- in Washington is another issue to pay attention to. Because if Biden's not able to get this through, and that uh, that will just compound the negative news cycle that's attached to a soft economy that's defined by inflation and lackluster jobs reports. Uh, so I'd, I, I'd be paying attention to those. Um, and then, you know, I think uh, voter motivation. Republicans are really motivated right now because they're entirely shut out of power at a federal level They've been shut out of power in Virginia for quite some time, 
in a meaningful way. They just lost control of the state legislature last year for the first time in, in years and years. And so um, I, I think that they're, they're quite motivated to, um, to, to get out and vote. So I'd be thinking about three things right now. Um, it's the status of the economy, the status of the Democrats agenda in Congress and voter motivation on a partisan level. I'm going to come back to the status of uh, the Democrats legislative uh, agenda in Congress in a moment, but going to the third point about voter motivation, where are we seeing, uh, is there unity in the Republican party in Virginia? Um, is Trump, like, is there, is there divisions that we can sort of, um, the, the Democrats can, can play on, or is there, is there unity in the Democrat, in the Republican party that's to let's just get back in again, or, or is, I mean, this lure, this sort of, you know, that, that this, the, the fact that Trump basically is sort of the de facto leader of their party in exile in Mar-a-Lago, you know, how is that playing out in local politics for the Republicans in, in Virginia? Yeah, this is the first sort of clear test case that we're going to have about the Trump effect and how powerful it is. So the Democrats are trying really hard to tie the Republican candidate, who is this um, business magnate named Glenn Youngkin, to Trump. They, there are signs in Virginia that say Youngkin equals Trump, hmm. especially in those suburban areas that I just mentioned, where Trump continues to be very, very unpopular. Now, Youngkin has really not um, done a stellar job as a candidate. He keeps muffing uh, his stance on vaccine mandates, um, isn't really a Trump type. I mean, like he's fantastic. He's not someone you would think of as like uh, a genuine Trump type. Mm. He's exceedingly wealthy, very elite, worked at um, this very famous and elite uh, private equity firm in Virginia uh, as the CEO, um, which is what Mitt Romney did uh, before he became governor. And so I think that um, he's really trying to play up these culture war issues like critical race theory, vaccine mandates in schools, mask mandates. And it's just coming off as like ham-handed, hmm. right? It's a little, it's a little bit, uh, I guess, just not smooth. Whereas Terry McAuliffe has been around for a while. He's not particularly exciting himself. Uh, certainly not youthful uh, the way Youngkin is and has baggage from, you know, being a governor before and being close to the Clintons. That being said, I think he, he is having more success defining Youngkin as a um, extension of the Trump brand then Youngkin is having owning his status as an extension of the Trump brand. However, McAuliffe is being held back by the things that I mentioned earlier, which are softness in the economy and the status of the Democrats agenda in Washington and uh, just more fervor on the Republican side to turn out and vote. 
Mask mandates uh, and vaccine mandates, how um, how divisive of an issue is that in a state like Virginia? And I know that Virginia's technically in the south, but it feels to me as, you know, a reasonably progressive kind of part of the country. Well, I mean, like, I think that this sort of gets into, uh, there's like reality and then there's like the media reality, right? And so it's sort of similar to the issue of guns in the US in the sense that 90% of people in the US support universal background checks, but we can't get any gun laws through Congress. And then all of a sudden it's a divisive polarizing issue. When it comes to uh, these vaccine mandates, they're broadly supported by 85% of the public, but there are profiteering politicians on the Republican side who are seizing the mantle of um, personal liberty and freedom in a very sanctimonious and disingenuous way, and using that as a cultural wedge issue to drive motivation amongst their base and smear their opponents at the cost of the of uh, collective society's benefit. So it's definitely something that um, is divisive in the sense that it gets a lot of play in the media and is accelerated uh, by social media as well. Uh, but you know, when you talk to people, I think you, you would find broad support for it. Everything you just said there, you could replace the Republican Party with Kyrie Irving. With what? With Kyrie Irving. Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, that's a weird thing, isn't it? Like, without just not wanting to go down a rabbit burrow, but I mean, just the fact... He also believes the earth is flat, so... uh, Yeah, I know. I'm just... And I'm so glad that the Celtics cut him loose because it's just... Like, you can just see all these problems. It's just interesting, actually, to see that the fact that the New York State or New York City has said vaccine mandates, you can't come to work unless you've got a vaccine um, for NBA players. He hasn't said whether he has or hasn't got a vaccine or been, sorry, vaccinated but is making this big thing saying, no, in fact, no, wait, it's the New York Nets, his basketball team, the Brooklyn Nets that have said to him, no, you can't front up unless you get vaccinated. Yeah. Um, is, I, I just wonder, when I'm reading that, I, I, I know this is elite athletes we're talking about here, so it's not real folk, but give us a sense of what the attitude is amongst the community to um, ma- mandated vaccinations in workplaces because there's, there's a debate that's now starting to be thrown up here in Australia as well. Um, and I just, I, I'm keen to get an insight from you about it in the, in the US. I think it depends on a lot of things, what, what type of work you're in, right? Um, whether you're a white collar or a blue collar traditionally worker, um, that tends to uh, impact your, you know, uh, how you'd feel about it um, or correlate with how you'd feel about it depends on where in the US you are. There are certain regions that are more amenable to these types of uh, policies than others. Mm. I think, again, broadly speaking, what my personal experience tells me is that by and large, people do support these. And if they don't, they'll begrudgingly go along with it. And that's because everybody sort of realizes that the way to live a normal life is by being vaccinated. That's the only way we're going to have a semblance of a normal life. 
in the US, we're still having, you know, 50,000 cases of COVID a day and thousands of deaths per day, full ICUs in certain places. It's not a good situation. And a lot of that is because we've sort of like hit a ceiling on people who are willing to be vaccinated. And what we've seen is that these employer mandates have been very effective. You know, uh, United Airlines was able to get 50% of their um, unvaccinated workforce vaccinated within three weeks after uh, they announced it. Mm. So it's definitely um, helping to move things in the right direction. I think employers also have um, a regulatory or litigious incentive to require their employees to be vaccinated. Because if you're not offering a healthy workplace, then um, you know who's gonna wanna come to work and if they catch COVID at work, can they sue you? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also, you know, depends on if you're a white collar worker or a blue collar worker. Ironically, white collar workers in the office tend to have more flexibility about whether they come back to work or stay at home, yet tend to be some of the ones who are most invested or, or supportive rather of a vaccine mandate. So that's sort of where, um, where we are right now with that. Let's turn to the um, to Congress um, and some of the things that you lifted up in your remarks earlier. Um, the Biden administration is obviously trying to get a, a whole swag of um, legislation through the House and the Senate, and you've named two in, two uh, senators in particular, Cinema uh, and um, and Mansion, um, both Democrats. Um, one from Cinema's uh, from Arizona, is she, and and Mansion's from West Virginia. He's from Arizona. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's uh, it's not moving through. Why is go into a bit more detail as to why Congress is suffering some legislative constipation, so to speak? Ooh, yeah, that's certainly the word for it. Um, so there are basically two types, or there's two two bills before Congress right now that the Democrats and President Biden really want to get through. There is a one point something trillion dollar bill focused entirely on physical infrastructure. These, this is an update, a much decades long needed update to America's bridges, roads, rail systems, airports, ports, but also includes, you know, things like broadband and in rural areas and upgrade to um, our cellular network, all this type of stuff. Um, so that was negotiated on a bipartisan basis, principally in the Senate. And that was like pulling teeth, but they got there. The Senate voted for it. And then it went before the House and the House was meant to vote on it. But the progressive caucus in the House said, hold on. We're not voting for this bipartisan infrastructure bill unless we get some movement on some of our priorities, which are things like climate change, uh, universal free uh, free um, community college, paid family leave, universal child care, things like that. 
But those things are not in this bill, are they? They are not in the infrastructure bill. They're in the second bill that's called this Build Back Better agenda. And so Nancy Pelosi said, fine, I'll cut you a deal. We will try and move them together at the same time and have a vote in the House at the same time on both. Problem there was that some moderate, more conservative members of the Democratic Party said that they would not support, in its current formulation, this Build Back Better agenda. And so the progressives said, well, fine, if you don't support it, we aren't going to support your infrastructure bill. Like, you know, it's mutually assured destruction. This is actually sort of like, if I get editorialized for a second, this is the most spine I've seen from the Democratic Party in a long time. Yeah, on each other. <laughs> yeah, well, um, and so what that did is it sort of um, placed this infrastructure bill in limbo while Congress tries to negotiate uh, this Build Back Better social uh, policy bill. Now, it all comes, there's super thin margins in the House and the Senate. The Democrats only have about four seats in the House, and it's a 50-50 Senate with the vice president breaking the tie. Um, So this basically comes down to two people, Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema, for some odd reason, in Arizona. Joe Manchin in West Virginia makes sense because West Virginia is one of the most, it's ruby red. It's one of the most Republican conservative places in the country. And Joe Manchin somehow happens to be a Democrat that represents the state. Although he very much has the proclivities of someone from a conservative state who is a Democrat, Um, especially uh, one that has uh, that's sort of like the um, epicenter of the coal industry, which is kind of at odds with a lot of progress on climate change. Hmm. Kirsten Cinema is from Arizona, which is trending, like Virginia, more blue by the day, and is um, though is still still like Virginia a toss up, uh, or you know competitive rather. Um, but sh- what's puzzling is that Kirsten Cinema's background is as a progressive organizer. She was an anti-war activist during the Iraq War. Has uh, you know go- walks around in purple hair. Um, is sort of uh, not someone you would expect to have this incoherent ideological opposition to some of the most popular policies in the Democratic agenda. So I think where the Democratic Party's ire is really focused on is not actually Joe Manchin because he's sort of a known problem in the sense that you know what he's likely to support and what he's not likely to support and you just got to accept that and deal with it. Kirsten Sinema won't tell anybody what she wants and no one can understand why she is against these things um, in Arizona. It's bizarre. I don't, I I was surprised myself because I remember 
following, you know, very, not in detail, but certainly when she first rose to prominence and was running for the Senate, and it was a great victory for the Democrats in Arizona. And just seeing her background, I saw that she was a progressive organiser and I thought, oh, that's great. That's a, that's a fantastic result for both the party and also um, for the folks in Arizona. And now she's behaving like this. I just, I, I am baffled and obviously you've got no insight into it as well. The other question I've got to put to you as well, Sam, is um, if both pieces of legislation, um, am I right in assuming both pieces of legislation have passed the Senate and they're in the House now, so they don't need to go back to the Senate, correct? No, so only one piece, uh, only the uh, physical infrastructure bill has passed the Senate. It's languishing in the House and the Build Back Better social policy bill um, hasn't really even come to life yet. Uh, okay, so the bill, but so the Build Back Better one isn't going to get passed in the Senate because of Cinema and Mansion at this point in time. So they're holding that, those Democrats are holding it to ransom, whereas the progressive Democrats in the House are holding the infrastructure bill to rent. Yeah, okay, gotcha. And it took me 30 minutes, but I got there in the end. Um, I think it's taken everybody 30 minutes to sort out American politics these days. It, it just reminds us so much why you need a Westminster system in the, in the, 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 the caucus solidarity and that you, you bind and there's none of this kind of, I'm going to you know f- like go and vote for, f- against my party's policies in, in the legislature, whether it be in the, in the, in the House or in the Senate. It just solve a whole bunch of problems like you join the party you have a platform there are policies that are developed and then you vote for it whether you like it or not and if you don't like it then you can go find yourself a little fringe party to go hang out in and i put that to like both the, the, the party huh like the forward party <laughs> yeah, exactly so okay what what how is this going to impact where does this how do you see this playing out and how does this play out for biden Well, um, I think he's hoping that it plays out positively, um, though things are a bit tense right now. So I think where this really uh, is an issue uh, is with these races in in Virginia. Now, if Terry McAuliffe loses the gubernatorial race to Glenn Youngkin in Virginia, I think what you're going to see is the fever will probably break in Washington and there will be um, a move to at least pass this physical infrastructure bill uh, because the writing will be on the wall that the social policy bill as a big sort of unit won't move together. Mm. Um, Now, uh, there is a, a strong incentive for the Democrats to pass both of these bills before the end of the year, because next year is the start of a um, federal election cycle where things get more fever pitched. People are less willing to take risky votes um, in Congress. And so not a lot gets done, mostly just naming of post offices and such. So uh, if it's not completed by the end of the year, you're going to see a lot of uh, a lot more fretting. Uh, But things will really turn south for Joe Biden if neither of these is passed heading into the holidays and um, the economy, uh, specifically inflation, continues to be a concern. Yeah, I mean, I I don't I haven't read 
too much on the the, the second bill, the um, Build Back Better bill, um, the social policy stuff, but certainly the infrastructure things and having spent a lot of time in the United States, my God, your country is in dire need of update of your infrastructure, but also from a social democratic campaign policy standpoint, it's such good policy because it's job creation. People see it getting done. Uh, it actually does actually improve, um, um, you know, communities. Um, I mean, it's one of the successes that the Andrews government has been our infrastructure projects right across the state. Just look how good the level crossing removal has been for this state. Yeah, absolutely. Like level crossings, um, the Melbourne, Me- Melbourne the Metro. Second. Yeah, exactly. It's been, it's been really great uh, urban planning. And the United States is in dire need of it. And I'm sure it's in dire need of it right across the country. And I, you know, I haven't been to all 50 states, but I've been to a fair few of them. And that's a common denominator I've found across the country is that we'd sort of said, I said to myself, my God, this place must have looked amazing in the 50s and 60s when all this stuff got built. But yeah. it's now 2000, it's 2000s and it's the same frigging airport you're flying into. It's a dump or it's, you know, the, the Amtrak trains are, would have looked amazing <laughs> in 1971 when this train was built. But it's a lot older now, you know. Um, um, not to diminish the the sort of the social agenda that um, the the sections of the party are trying to put through as well. I'm sure that they are super important as well. But it just sends a message to the rest of the country that they can't get their shit together, and you're going to regret that, just like they did after the 2010 midterms. Um, history, we have to learn these lessons, you know. I just anyway, I'm, it's up to them to work it out. Um, Roe v. Wade, the only thing I want to talk to you about before we wrap up is uh, obviously um, the Texas legislator put a um, – how would you describe it? I, I mean, it's, it? It's a ban on abortions in Texas, but it's a bit more nuanced. Well, it's nuanced it's more than, than that. that. Yeah. So um, in the U.S. we have this constitutional principle that's been made famous in the Supreme Court case that everybody knows about called Roe v. Wade. And the constitutional principle says that you have a right to an abortion, the constitutionally protected right to abortion, as long as the fetus is before viability, which is um, sort of the consensus is around like 22 weeks or or whatever. Um, And Republican activists have been going after that principle for decades, basically ever since it passed. And they're getting closer and closer to their goal of overturning that. And to achieve that goal, they've taken some novel approaches, especially in the state of Texas, where the state has said, okay, you may not perform an abortion in the state of Texas past the sixth week of gestation for the fetus, which a lot of people don't even know they're they're pregnant at that point. And if an abortion is performed at any point, uh, the people who performed the abortion or helped facilitate the abortion can be sued by anyone for up to $10,000. So if if I am your Uber driver and I drive you to Planned Parenthood and you have an abortion, I, the Uber driver, 
can be sued for $10,000 just for driving you to the abortion. This has already happened twice um, where a very brave doctor said, I, this is crazy, I'm going to uh, provide abortion care. Um, and someone in Arkansas, I think it was, sued uh, this doctor in the state of Texas. What makes Texas's law more dystopian and absurd is that you don't even need to have a connection to the abortion. So you don't need to be the partner of the person who had it. You don't need to be a family member. You don't even need to know the person. You don't even need to live in the same county. Um, you just have to know that this abortion occurred and you can sue for up to $10,000 anybody uh, associated with it as long as they are not the woman themselves. So um, this is, was designed to get around the constitutional principle established in Roe v. Wade because it's not the courts who are enforcing this, rather it's private citizens who are enforcing this in civil courts through this dystopian vigilante um, bounty system. <laughs> um, uh, I have so many questions to ask you of that. Um, uh, my first- Where do we come up with this shit? I have yeah, no I idea. Know. And I know, I guess we've sort of seen it coming Think about the guy, like, it's definitely guys. Like, think about the guys sitting around in a room be like, what if we tried this? Yeah. Like, what the fuck is wrong with that person? Go have a beer. Go watch a baseball game. I don't know. Like, you are, I understand people being, having problems with abortions, but being that sadistic is is really um it's really gross what do we take from the i think was it the aclu or someone uh sought an intervention it uh before the supreme court on this decision and they didn't even bat an eyelid i know that's not the legal term but they basically kind of ignored it uh what what do we what do we draw from that moment of the attitude of the supreme court towards what's going on in texas right now well, that's the million dollar question. I think the uh, the Supreme Court uh, is uh, is a 63 conservative majority. It's gonna be that way for a long, long time, perhaps even longer if Stephen Breyer decides that he wants to pull a RBG and not retire for some unknown reason. Um, and um, I think everybody is, is stealing themselves for the likelihood that the Supreme Court will overturn Roe v. Wade within the next six to nine months. I would I would suspect by next summer, Roe v. Wade is is overturned in the United States. Um, at that point, uh, abortion would become illegal in I think twenty two states, um, and uh, what are we just supposed to make of it that? The Supreme Court didn't issue an, an injunction and instead allowed this law to take place, to go into effect while it worked its way through the appeals court system. 
I think that just adds credibility to my claim that we're likely to be without Roe v. Wade in a year's time. Um, you know, clearly the court is sympathetic to the cause, even if they aren't sympathetic to the law itself. I was reading an article in the uh, Boston Globe the other week that cited a Supreme Court case in the 1970s. I don't know if you read this about, you know, you know, the bar Grendel's Den in Cambridge um, in Harvard Square. It is actually, if you're ever up in Cambridge, it's a great little, it's a great little bar. It's down, it's like downstairs um, in, um, I can't, is it Brattle Square or whatever, one of the squares in Cambridge there. Beautiful little um, sort of tucked away bar. You know, originally I think it was just a restaurant and then they, they applied for a liquor license uh, in the early seventies or maybe late sixties. And there was, there was a church, like a Presbyterian or a Methodist church just across the road from Grendel's Den. And they objected to the liquor license. Grendel's Den took it all the way to the Supreme court to say that, um, because there was, I, I don't know what they were challenging there, but the, the the church was basically saying, even though it doesn't impact on us in any way, shape or form, we don't want you to have a liquor license. We just don't want you to have a liquor license, period, because we don't like liquor. Uh, they took it to Supreme Court and they won. And there's an argument there that this precedent can be used to shoot down the Texas law because of people don't have a right to interfere in in um, in the activities of individual citizens or organisations, so therefore, there's no that you were talking before about that. You know, people can sue uh, yeah, someone. Vigilantes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that this Grendel's Den case may be the the hope here to um, to knock knock out the. Um, the well, Texas. I think if we're uh, hinging our hopes on a dive bar the way countless others have before us, we're in a bad place. <laughs> yes, true. Anyway, I'm uh, I'm a glass half full kind of guy, Sam. I'm just looking for glimmers. Of, I'm looking for a crease that I can run through. I, I think your uh, your glimmers of hope are, are going to come closer to home these days uh, with the fact that your lockdown is, is ending soon. Yeah, indeed. Look, before we wrap... Uh, I do want to talk about sport. So, and I deliberately left it to the end of the podcast so everyone could, um, you know, those who don't want to talk about, hear, hear me talk about baseball. I really, I just need to talk about it because of my Red Sox. I didn't, like if you could look at my WhatsApp chat, there's a baseball group chat or, and my Boston sports WhatsApp group chat, uh, which is mostly Australians on it. Uh, in the final weeks of the re- regular season, it was just this, uh, this uh, my, my I was swinging from depression to uh, uh, hope back and forth between every game. At one point there, I, I said, "Just end it. Just stop it. Don't just don't play the rest of the games. I don't even want us to make the wild card. Just put us out of our misery. I'm sick of it. This is just a, this is after we lost to Baltimore, I think, or we got swept by the Yankees at Fenway. I was like, "Oh, just stop. Just stop it all. This this is giving me the shits. I don't want the season to end. You know." And then we go to. We go to uh, Washington, D.C., and we play your beloved Nats. Uh, need to win all three games. Not that you've got a great side right now, but even then, we did just lose two games to the, to the Orioles. And I was th- thinking, 
I was like, just lose the first game because if you lose the first game, that's it, we're done. Because then, you know, the Yankees and the Blue Jays will make the wild card game. But of course they don't. They win that game and then they win the next game and then it comes down to the final game, which was a pretty – I think I think Chris Sale was – Rush the Yankees. Yeah, Chris Sale was pitching for us in that final game and he got knocked out of the game in the first two innings. I was like, oh, my God, we're, you know, we're going to fall at the final game 162. We don't. We play the Yankees. We crush the Yankees, which love that. And I was glad we got New York. I didn't want to get Toronto because I didn't think we'd get around Toronto, but I thought we could beat – the Yankees at Fenway. We do that and then we come up against the AL division champions and the American League champions, um, divisional champions, the 100-game win, Tampa Bay Rays, five-game series in the ALDS. Do not think we're going to – I said, well, we might jag one game. That'll be about it. Neck minute, beat those guys 3-1 and now we're in the ALCS against the Houston Astros. And then the other one that's going to be the Braves versus either the Dodgers or Giants they're playing today. So how about those Red Sox, Sam? Well, yeah, I mean, they're, I think they'll probably take the Astros. Really? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. The Astros kind of spanked the White Sox, but I don't know, man. The, the Red Sox, they, they've got some energy going. The game that I want to see is tonight, which I'm trying to uh, to go watch. That's the my, the Giants Dodgers. That has been a good series. That'll be a good game tonight. Yeah, and that, sure. I mean for that to go, every other game in the divisional series across both leagues finished up three one. This is the only one that's going the full five game, and it kind of had you felt like that was on the cards, right? Like that they, is the two best teams in baseball, bitter rivals. How can you not love that? Yeah, and they've been close all season. They've basically been neck and neck all season. And a good buddy of mine uh, is a massive Padres fan, and he kind of thought this was their year. Little did he oh. – and he thought that he would be in a sort of a, you know, a knife fight with the Dodgers to see who could win the division and they'll get the wild card spot. No one saw the Giants coming. I didn't see – Out of nowhere. Out of nowhere. Um, and this last game is obviously in – it's in San Francisco, isn't it? Yeah, it is, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, they've got yeah. – yep, yep, yep. Yeah, huge game. And then they'll come up against whoever wins that will play the Braves, and I think they'll just sweep the Braves. I don't think the Braves yeah. are that great. Um, and then uh, and then we've got in the other one, you've got the Red Sox. Uh, yeah, look, one thing I will say, and I said this to a mate of mine the other day, this season, in particular the second half of the season, has felt like 2013 for the Red Sox. It has that vibe. We're not – we are not a complete team. They do just enough. Yeah. And we're just kind of piecing it together. And I think we did it in 2013, you know, largely because of in late April, the Boston Marathon bombing happened. And I think that galvanized that team yeah. in a way that I don't think would normally have happened. Um, and as it got, as they progressed through, as they got, you know, through each month, they remained competitive or on top get to the postseason, and I just think that then that just sort of wave of emotion brought them all the way through to win the World Series. A wave of emotion enough for me to get on an aeroplane and fly there, you know, for game six at Fenway. Like yeah. I just, you know, even I was, yeah. I, even, when I still watch stuff on the Boston Marathon and stuff, I, I still get emotional. Someone sent me a video that I was bloody choking up. So there was a, you know, I guess you kind of get a sense of that kind of um, when sport can transcend just sport, right? Uh, this Absolutely. year kind of has that kind of same feeling, not because of not because of anything like a, a tragedy like the marathon bombing, but 
this team kind of has a kind of a belief like, why not us? You know, everyone's been writing us off since the start of the season, but we're still here kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I I think that the uh, look, I think the the Red Sox are are going to make it out of the uh, the American League. That's my thought right now. And then who you've got coming out of? Uh, well, I mean, not that we know. First of all, who do you think is going to win tonight between the Dodgers and Giants? I'm hoping for the Giants. They got Logan Webb on the mound. Used to live in San Francisco. I got to go for the Giants. That's no true, question. actually. That was your hometown there for a wee bit. Yeah. Um, and Webb's, oh, yeah. I mean, it's a pretty good uh, pitching matchup, actually, between Webb and, uh, is it um, Nebel or whatever his name is? Yeah. Um, yeah. Both... Uh, ERA for this um, postseason is both um, they haven't given up a run, given up a run yet, um, and then uh, and then so maybe uh, maybe a Giants Red Sox, you think that'd be sweet. I would love that. Coast to coast. Be- well, yeah. we shall see. Samuel, first of all, once again, congratulations on your uh, engagement. Thank you so much for coming on the show today um, to talk about uh, U.S. politics. Um, any, you want to keep, I always ask you this and you always decline. Do you want to make any predictions about the, the race, races in Virginia? Do you think the Democrats will get up in the gubernatorial? I think, I think the Democrats ultimately will win in Virginia. Um, but you know, we're in that crucial final stretch. Mm-hmm. So a lot could happen, but, uh, I think, uh, I think that's where we're, we're heading. First Tuesday in November. We'll, um, we'll look forward to seeing the results coming. Okay. All right. Thank you so much, Stephen. Great to, great to chat. You too. Take care, brother. See ya. Thanks for listening to Socially Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcast or Podchaser. And to get all the latest on Socially Democratic, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday.